Uh, the study of the book of Acts, written by uh, a man by the name of Luke, is chronicling the life and times of the Christians, this new church, this new group of believers. What were they doing? How were they responding to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And how did they go about continuing the mission that God had called them to? And we have been watching as we've been interacting in these first four chapters, uh, the early days of the church were outstanding. There was awesome things taking place. Uh, the disciples and the apostles were doing great things, signs and wonders, miracles and healings of people. Uh, people loved being a part of that group of individuals, the fellowship that they had. They shared things with one another, as we'll hear about again today. Nobody seemingly had a need when you were a part of the church. But in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, we see that some trouble starts brewing. We learn that the religious leaders who were against the teachings of Jesus when Jesus was teaching and preaching during his ministry on earth, they start getting worked up, and they grab and, and arrest Peter and John, two of the leaders of this early church, and they arrest them, and, and they bring them in, and they threaten them that if they speak or, or talk about the name of Jesus, if they speak about him being the resurrected Messiah, that trouble would come. But God, by his grace and mercy, emboldens those two and the disciples to continue to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ through the death, burial, and resurrection of, of his son Jesus. And they continue to move forward. But what comes as a shock in our passage today is that the attacks against this early church didn't just come from outside of the church. But what we're going to learn is something that probably surprised many of them that the church itself would have people from within that would cause dissension, that would cause trouble because they were not living the life that God had called his followers to live. And we're going to learn today that a church needs to deal with those situations by God's grace, but also uh, to live out and, and, and show the justice of God. And we're going to see that this morning as we look at the life of Ananias and Sapphira. So let's pick up in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 32, and we're going to go through chapter 5, verse 11. That's going to be our text today. We'll be there our entire time. And so let's look to God's word. I'll ask for God's blessing, and then we'll jump right into our time together. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We begin chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. 
Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? She breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Kids are all different. They come in different shapes, different sizes, different hair color of hair. Uh, we're different as, as children, but there are certain inclinations, there are certain practices that uh, whether you were a kid uh, 60 years ago or a kid today, uh, some things still remain true. Kids are kids. And one of those inclinations, one of those activities that seems to transcend time and, and even gender is that of pretending. Uh, playing make-believe. As a young boy, uh, me and my friends would make-believe we were in the Game 7 of the World Series, uh, standing in the batter's box uh, with the game on the line, and, and we would use all of the uh, sounds of the crowd, and we would talk about what the announcer might be saying as we approached, and, and we would, with great joy, pretend that we were hitting the game-winning Grand Slam to let our team win. But it wasn't just a boy thing. Girls did the same thing. The girls in our neighborhood, you would see, they would do um, uh, uh, make-believe by dressing up and, and playing house and, and having uh, uh, imaginary tea parties. And I remember the girls of our neighborhood would try to get the boys to be a part of it, and we would not. And so you would see the girls of the neighborhood, they would bring in all their bevy of stuffed animals, and they would set them around, and they would set the table, and they would pretend that they were having this elaborate and elegant dining experience where warmth and sophistication was the day. Now here's the great thing. Back in the day when you would see that, and even today when I've seen my own boys do the former, not the latter, by the way, I think it's cute there's something really just wonderful seeing a young girl pretending to be all grown up and dressing in her mother's clothes and trying on her mom's high heels and, and stepping around as if she's an adult. There's something very, very wonderful about that and, and the innocence of all of that. And we sit and we smile and we think back to when we were a child with no worries and no concerns that you could involve yourself in a game of pretend. But imagine with me that you drove into my neighborhood and you drove by my home and I was in the part or the driveway of my house and you hear me all by myself at 41 years of age playing basketball and I'm dribbling and out of my mouth goes and there's Tim Bidal. He's being double teamed by LeBron. He's got Stephon Curry next to him and no, it doesn't look like he can pass to the left or pass to the right. No, Bidal goes to the hoop and slams it home and the crowd goes wild and I'm saying woohoo and I'm doing all that. You know what you would do? You would call the authorities. What is wrong with you, man? Come on, you've got a couple screws missing. That which was cute as a kid is altogether crazy as an adult. Let's take it for a moment. I come home from work and, and my thoughts are that I would come home and Amanda would be busy with the boys and busy with some of the house uh, events that are going on and different tasks that are, are there. And I come home and Amanda's having an imaginary tea party around the dining room table with stuffed animals. Okay? And she's asking, you know, how is the tea and crumpets and, and all of that? And I would say, you know, what was cute for Amanda when she was five is no longer cute now that she's 27. <laughs> we all pretend, don't we, dear? Okay? That which was cute as a kid is not all that cute as adults. But here's the crazy thing. We may not do that because we don't want to lose our reputation of being weird. We do a lot of pretending as adults. We pretend about who we are. We pretend about how our feelings are going at a certain time. We pretend about uh, the things that uh, we have. 
We pretend about how much money we make. We pretend about how great our family is. We pretend all the time. And, and while that may be, in some levels, you may think is okay, and that's for you to determine how far your life of pretend will go, I'm here to tell you that sadly, some in this place are even pretending spiritually. You're pretending that you're something that you really are not. And there may be a lot of reasons why that game of pretend of spirituality is there. Maybe it's to uh, prove a point to your mom or your dad. Maybe it's to prove something to your spouse. Maybe you uh, just like being here and enjoy the programs and the, and the relationships that are here. And to do so, you've got to be more spiritual than you really are. So you put on a show. The Bible talks about this, and it speaks of it under a heading of hypocrisy. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, said, Beware of doing your righteous deeds before men. Now, listen, I'm doing a righteous deed right now before you. All right. So what Jesus isn't saying is, is do everything undercover, do everything incognito. But what it's saying is, is what is your reason? What is the reason behind why you do your spiritual things? Today we're going to look at a good example. We're going to look at a bad example. And then we're going to look at an ugly response in many ways what what happens i wanted to call this the good the bad and the ugly because we get this great picture of the church generous and giving we see a wonderful example from barnabas and then we get this uh ananias and sapphira and they seemingly are in it for the show they seemingly are in it to pretend of what's really going on and god is about to strike them down Now, a couple things that we need to get out of the way before we get to the outline where you can follow along is that within this passage of Scripture, three truths come out that I think are important for us to see. Number one, just as there were pretenders in the early church, there are pretenders in every church. So here's this healthy, here's this vibrant church that's doing great things for the Lord in Acts chapter 4 and 5. God is at great work in the life of his church. And within that church, that healthy body, are a group of people that seem to be spiritual but really are not. That seem to love the Lord but really are all about themselves. Let me tell you, it is easy with a church this size that we have amongst our regular attenders and members, and I'm not here to tell you who they are because I don't know, because you can fool me and I can fool you, that God seemingly says amongst every church, there will be pretenders. There will be people who are just going through the motion. Number two, we need to recognize that even healthy churches will have this as a reality. So just because we have pretenders in our midst doesn't mean that a church like Village or the Church of Acts wasn't healthy. Every diagnostic test that was done on the early church would tell us it was a healthy and vibrant congregation. And so we need to recognize that it isn't that having pretenders loses your health. The question is, what is a healthy church going to do? And we're going to see how the early church was healthy. They called out the pretending. And the health of a church is not determined on that it doesn't have pretenders, is that it does not make pretending spiritually comfortable. That we're constantly calling it out, that we're, we're calling people to repentance and forgiveness of, of this sin of hypocrisy. Number three, just as it was back then, So today, pretending in hypocrisy always involves spirituality that people see. So listen, this is putting on a show. Because without other people seeing it, you cannot be hypocritical. I cannot show hypocrisy to myself. It it does not work. I have to have a group of individuals of which I can then say something or proclaim something or, or show something that others can see all the while knowing that I am not who I say or display myself to be. And that begs the question then, because hypocrisy is something that we all struggle with, 
each and every one of us, that we have to ask the question this morning, why do I give? Why do I serve? Why do I sing and teach? Why do I lead? Why do I preach? Why do I go to small group? Why do I read my Bible? Why do I pray? Our text demands that we ask the question, not what kind of Christian am I in the eyes of others, but hypocrisy asks the question that we must ask of ourselves, what kind of Christian does God see? You see, we're too busy putting on the show of what we are spiritually to others that we faintly remember that it's God who can read and knows the motives of our hearts. The people in Acts had been fooled. But only God was the one who said, you can't fool me. So our text this morning drives us to a place that we have to get to the very essence of why we do all that we do in the name of Christ. So let's look at two headings this morning. Number one, let's look at a contrast of two types of people. Number one, bona fide believers. Bona fide believers, notice in point one, love to share generously. They love to share generously. Notice that the rest of chapter 4 is all good. And I've told you that the book of Acts is all about contrast. And the contrast is good example, God moving in the hearts and minds of people, they're generous. Contrast number 2, and the word that is placed in the middle of it in chapter 5 is the word but. Second contrast, and Ananias and Sapphira who lie about what they're going to give to the Lord, who work up a plan to deceive everybody, who want to do it for the show, in the contrast of how God responds. So bona fide believers love to share generously. Notice that our text is clear. That at the heart of the Christian faith is a heart of giving. There should be, there would be no Christianity without giving. Tim talked about it earlier during our communion time. For God so loved the world that he gave. We would not be followers of God. We would not be in relationship with God unless God was the giving God that he is. He's given us life. He's given us breath. And he's now given us salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. So if God who we say we want to imitate is a giving God, is a generous God, then at the very heart of all that we do as Christians, generosity must, not should, not might, but must be a hallmark of who we are as believers. You cannot be a believer and not be generous because you then have not recognized the generosity of the God who saved you. So here we have the church. It's growing in number. Now it's in the thousands, the text tells us. And those are believing are of one heart and soul. And we learn that these new converts had come from many different places. In Acts chapter 2, we know a festival was taking place in this first part of Acts on the day of Pentecost. And people from all different places had come to Jerusalem to worship. And they now were staying because they had come to know Jesus. And they wanted to know what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so instead of staying for the weekend, now weeks into it, they're still hanging around. And so there's a lot of needs around. People needed places to stay. People needed money to eat. People needed uh, opportunities to continue to learn about Jesus. And so there were a lot of needs amongst the early church. But why would the church do that? Why would the church respond with generosity? Notice generosity begins with a dependence on God. Verse 32 says, those who believed. What did they believe in? They believed that Jesus Christ gave his life that we might be saved, that they might find salvation. They know that Jesus who was rich became poor on our behalf. So it would seem only right to continue that life of generosity that Jesus had shown. 
I want you to notice, in fact, I want you to write this down somewhere in your outline. Giving, or generosity maybe is a better say, generosity is always connected to gratitude. Generosity is always connected to gratitude. Let me explain. You're driving down the road on your way home from church today, and you see someone broken down on the side of the road. You make a decision to stop and be generous with your time and your attention to that matter, and the reason why is what? I'm going to contend that the reason why you do it is at some point, at some time, you found yourself on the side of the road, and you recognize the angst, you recognize the, the turmoil that there can be, you can recognize the helpless feeling that you have when car after car drives by and you find yourself in a place of need. Parenting. Much of the reason why we parent doesn't come because we're just great people. It is because we recognize that at some point we were young, at some point we were dumb, at some point we were in need as kids, and we were sure glad that mom and dad met our needs. We were sure glad that there was a place that we could call home. And so we recognize that we too were at a place of need at one point, and someone was generous, someone was kind, someone was loving, that they would then give us what we needed. And now in turn, we have the opportunity to do the same. I've shared this story before, but it's been some time. When we were a younger family, when Amanda truly was 27, we were out at Olive Garden with our boys, and Noah was probably six or seven years of age, and, um, and we were enjoying uh, Olive Garden meal and having a great time. We were laughing. It was one of those days, parents, that you were just you were happy to be a parent, right? The kids are eating. Food isn't all over the walls, and not everybody's looking, praying that you'll get up and leave early. It was one of those just, you know, moments where God's blessing is on you as a family, and you feel like you haven't completely lost it, right? And during that meal, we're having a great time, and Noah says, hey, guys, look at that lady. And once he did it halfway quietly when he said that, Look at that lady. She's all by herself. She looks sad. She looks lonely. Nobody's with her. She has nobody to talk to. She, he says, Dad, I think you should buy her meal. I said, Son, use your generosity, brother. <laughs> I said, Okay. Encouraged by my son's heart. I said, let's do that. So we told the waitress that we wanted to do that and, and said, don't make a big deal about it. And then about 15 minutes later, she's ready to check out, if you will, and she's told that someone has paid her bill and there's a great smile, but she's persistent. Who, who paid? I want to be, uh, show my gratitude for this. And the waitress breaking down finally points over to our table and knowing that there was a moment that we needed to respond because she was looking at us now. We walked over and I told her the story of why we did that. And Noah was right. She was lonely. Her son had said she was, he was going to meet her there. Her older son and her son now, who is an adult, had said over and over again, well, we'll have dinner here and then wouldn't show up. We'll have dinner here and wouldn't show up. And that she was just blessed by it. And we spent a moment with her doing what? Being generous because we recognize what it's like to not eat alone. We recognize what it was to not have a family around us. You see, generosity always comes out of a mindset that once you were poor, you were in need, you were broken. Now here's the crazy thing. God's generosity isn't that way. That's the amazing thing about God's generosity. He was never poor. He was never broken. He was never in need. God's generosity came out of an agape love, a supernatural love that he saw us in our need and he reached out to help us. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, if we're going to be generous as this early church was, we've got to believe that we are recipients of God's grace, that without him we could do nothing. Generosity begins with a dependence on God. Notice it, it shows a devotion to the mission of God. 
So we give as Christians, why? Verse 32 again says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was their own. But everyone had held them in common. Let me say right away, what isn't happening here isn't some socialist or communist compound where you became a Christian and all your stuff, all your goods got put into a common pot and everybody got to use it, that it was the the society's possessions. No, it says that these things were their own. Private ownership was still very much a part of the early church. The assets that the people brought in as they came to faith was still theirs. And it's said over and over again. It's said of Barnabas, he sells a property that people sold their land. Ananias of Sapphira, Peter says twice, did you not own it? Did you not have possession of it? Did you not have ownership of it? So private enterprise is there. So what were they one in heart and soul that they would be willing, open-handed to give? The answer is the mission of Jesus Christ. Notice in the text, it says in verse 33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. They recognized they were recipients of God's grace, and now they were to be dispensers of that grace through the proclamation of the gospel. And so they learn that they've received such riches from God and that now they are to go and to share the goodness of God in all its ways and all its forms to not only followers of Jesus Christ but to all those who had need. And so their heart and soul is dedicated to seeing the furthering of the kingdom of God in their present status. It leads to another thing. Generosity is determined to see others' needs first. Notice it says that there was not a needy person among them. Why? Because the church recognized what we at times fail to recognize today. That as the testimony of God in our lives... What good is it to say that we have been given all of this grace and all of this mercy as followers of Jesus Christ and to then allow people around us to be needy? What good is it to say that we've received amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But when it comes to you and your life, every man's for themselves. You figure it out on your own. No, when we're recipients of God's grace, we're going to be generous because we see that the kingdom of God is won by that of generosity. And so we've got to look to the needs of others. We've got to see the needs of people around us. So let me ask you this question. Let me ask you to take this quiz for a moment. In the last 30 days, if someone was to watch your life, If someone was to look at your bank account, your checking account, and see how you spend your money, what would they know of Christianity from your example in the last 30 days? What would they see that you have been transformed by the grace of God? Would they see one who is generous as a result of their faith? Or a paradox, a contradiction of terms? You see, that's where Christ's followers have to be people who open their hearts, open their hands, and open their homes. Not because we have to, but because we want to, because we recognize that is exactly what God has done for us. But notice it needs an example, and we see generosity needs to be displayed by leaders. It needs to be displayed by leaders. In verse 36... We are introduced to a man. So people are giving. It's awesome. And it's all anonymous, right? People are giving. And yet we get to verse 36 and it says, but one specific gift was given. And that specific gift was given by a man named Joseph whose name would change to Barnabas. And I think that's an important element that's there. Because this gift was of such significance, the apostles take notice of it. Now you may think that's not a good thing. There's a couple reasons why I think Barnabas' name 
First of all, is changed from Joseph to Barnabas, which means encouragement. I think they changed his name because the gift was such an encouragement to the people of the church and to the people who were in need that they said, you know what? We're just going to call you the encourager from this point on. That's going to be your new name. You are an encouragement to us. And we would see Barnabas would live up to that encouraging name over and over again throughout the book of Acts. And we'll see Barnabas's name come up. The second reason why I think that his name is brought up is I believe Barnabas, which we know later in the book of Acts was true, that Barnabas at this point is a leader within this fledgling church. And leaders are held to higher standards. Leaders uh, many times are viewed with... Uh, a deeper sense of trans, uh, if you will, transparency to see what is going on. And I believe for the, on the other side of it, that Ananias and Sapphira are leaders within the church. I think that's why God deals so severely with them. They're to be a godly example, and in fact, they're being a most negative example to what's going on. And so we have this contrast of two gifts that are given, I believe, by two leaders in the church, one for good, and one for bad. But nonetheless, we have a picture that the leaders were setting the tone, setting the example. Noah and I recently were watching an old war movie where the general says to his troops, I will be the first one on the battlefield and I will be the last one that leaves it. That's leadership. Leadership is not one that tells people You all should give, and I'll watch as you do so. Leadership needs to be willing to say, I am going to do this, and I'm going to be an example to others so that they might imitate what I'm doing as I imitate Christ as they imitate me. Barnabas was a wonderful leader. He shows that he's willing to give. Now I want you to recognize he doesn't give everything. And I'm not asking leaders, nor do I think that God is asking of me that we give everything. It says that he sold one of his fields, not all of his fields, that would be unwise. But seemingly, whatever he gave was of such significance that it served to be an encouragement to others. And I want you to know as a leader, that is something that I know Amanda and I have strived for since we've stepped into this role some 15 years ago. We recognize the need to be examples. Not perfect. Not having it all together. And one of the areas that leaders must show, must show their leadership is through their generosity. Generosity in the giving of money to the ministry of the church. Generosity in giving of time to people. Generosity of opening their homes. In fact, one of the key characteristics of a church leader is that they are hospitable. That they're generous in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. That they're generous with sharing the grace of God. That they're of high favor in the eyes of the people within the church. And of good reputation of people outside of the church. Leaders must be generous. And we've got to lead in that. Notice generosity finally demands trust. It demands trust. Three times in our passage, three times, and remember what I've told you about the Bible, look at phrases that are shared over and over and over again. That keys you into something. Three times we see, and the gifts were placed at the apostles' feet. That takes trust. These people were selling their assets. In their day, hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dollars were being raised for this fledgling church. And it was being brought by these humble people, these gracious people, and it was being placed at the feet of the twelve. You think that demanded trust? Oh, but the apostles, they were of good reputation. Let us not forget that the church's first treasurer was stealing. Judas, let's remember that, that even with Jesus overseeing the whole process, that the treasurer was pulling money from the money bags, 
And how many churches have been impacted because of someone's hand in the treasury? And church leaders need to recognize that every dollar that is given, listen, between the four campuses of Village Bible Church, we raise in a year about $2 million. That's a lot of money. There's a lot of opportunity for theft. There's a lot of opportunity for embezzlement. There's a lot of opportunity for pilfering. And we need to recognize that every gift that is given demands trust on your part. Because you're placing it at the church's feet and you're saying, Church, I am trusting that my money, first of all, will be used wisely. Number two, that it doesn't go to just make someone rich. I got it. Just as a side note, listen, listen, hold your pastors accountable in this as the church grows and all that. I can't tell you how frustrated I am watching some of these big church pastors in these mansions driving these fancy cars. Listen, that's unwise. I don't care how they got it. Be generous with your gifts, pastors, no matter how big your church is. Be generous with that. Let's be examples to be content, not not greedy, but I digress. We need to be careful with these things. We need to make sure that with every dollar that's given to a place like Village Bible Church, the utmost care is taken. It's not overseen by one person, but there's a checks and balances every step of the way that there's safeguards. And I'm here to tell you that at every moment, from the collecting of the tithes and offerings, to the counting of the tithes and offerings, to the depositing of the tithes and offerings, to the accounting of the tithes and offerings, at every point, there is a check and a counter check and a third check. Every year we have an uh, outside accounting firm that comes in and checks everything with regards to how things are done. Why? Because we recognize that within the church, you have to have the trust of those who are going to be generous with you. And so we go, and I'm so thankful for our stewardship team, and our finance team, and our treasurer, and all of those. I'm so thankful that money doesn't have to go through my hands. I'm so thankful I don't have to be even near that. So that you can have trust, and that your gifts to a church like Village are being used that every nickel, dime, and penny, and every bill, and every dollar, and every thousand of dollars is given to the kingdom work. Generosity demands trust. And the apostles back in the day, and the church of today has to make sure that that is never tarnished. So now we get to case study number two. Ananias and Sapphira. Notice, I, I, this must have been a miracle. Uh, in my Bible, chapter 4 ends on page 912, and chapter 5 begins on page 913. What a contrast. We have to turn the page. And as we turn the page, we get whiplash. Because what was so good in chapter 4 is so bad in chapter 5. But a man named Ananias and Sapphira they give. And what do we see? We don't see bona fide believers who are wanting to share generously. We have pious pretenders who love the show and are greedy. Enter stage left, Ananias and Sapphira. We know nothing about them. As quickly as they appear on the pages of Scripture, they disappear. Here's what we know. They sold a piece of property just like Barnabas did. And they brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It would seem almost that the same explanation is given, except verse 2 tells us that with his wife's knowledge, he kept some of the proceeds for himself and only brought a part of it to the apostles. And that this sin would lead to the immediate judgment of God. And they would pay dearly. They would pay with their lives. So what went wrong? First of all, recognize that no one told them to give. No one demanded that they gave. And so the sin wasn't, was that they didn't want to give when they were supposed to. There was no command for anybody to give. They were giving out of the generosity of their hearts. Number two, their sin wasn't that they sold a piece of property and gave only a portion of it 
to the apostles. That would have been okay. Sell a property for, let's say, $1,000, and I'm going to give $500 to the church for it to use it in every way that they would want. That was not their sin. Their sin was, is that they told everybody, listen, we just sold, the wife and I just sold a property for a thousand dollars, and because we love the church, and we love you, and because we love God, we're going to give the whole thousand to the church. Amen? Amen. Wow, man, a nice the fire. They're great Christians. They're great. This is awesome. Just like Barnabas, they're selling and they're giving their land. But then on their way home from church, sitting eating pot roast that, that afternoon, they say to each other, you know what? A thousand dollars is a lot to give. And you were talking, dear, about drapes and a new hat. And Ananias thinks, boy, the workbench out in the garage could use some help, need some new tools. Listen, dear, let's, let's tell everybody we're going to give a thousand. Let's only give 500. Yeah, that, because that, we're helping out the church and we're helping ourselves out. And you know what? What people don't know won't hurt them. They're going to think we're great. And, and we're going to get the same applause that Barnabas. Maybe they'll change our name instead of Anna and Sapphira. Maybe they'll name us a new name that talks about, sure, swell great people. That will be great. That will be awesome. But the problem is, is that greed had entered into their hearts. And greed had caused all kinds of issues. You see, greed is one of those base sins that leads to all kinds of other sins. So notice a couple things. Greed, first of all, makes you put on a mask. Okay? Greed makes you put on a mask. How apropos it starts thundering when we talk about God's judgment. Okay? I paid for that, by the way. Okay? No, greed makes you put on a mask. They played a part that wasn't a true depiction of who they were. That's the hypocrisy of it all. They were wanting people to see how great they were, and they wanted to be known as dollar people when they were only putting in a couple dimes. Some years ago, I was catering at an event where we were in a prestigious subdivision. And it was the first birthday party of the family where we were having it. And they had this beautiful home. It would take your breath away. And when I got there and I'm getting things set up and all of that, there was a moving truck that had come in. And it kind of seemed odd because the person had said they had been there for some time. And it was like, why is there a moving truck? And why are they bringing in furniture and all of that? And I could not quite figure it out. And they're setting things up and all that, and we go into the home, and they're bringing in, listen, they're bringing in dining ware and uh, cutlery ware and all of that. They're bringing in vases, and or vases, as people would say, setting things up. They're staging the entire house, and it didn't make much sense to me, but you're the caterer, you don't say anything, and, and moving on, and... And then the guys finished up and they're walking out. And I said, did they just move in? He said, they've been here for a while. He says, no, the movers said, this is our new clientele. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, this is where we come in. We do this all the time. They rent furniture for 24 hours. Why? Because they've probably overextended themselves, he says, on the house. So they couldn't afford anything in the house. And now their family and friends are coming and they got to put on a show. So everything that was brought in was rented for 24 hours. And once the party is done, the furniture goes. You see, we put on masks. We put on masks and say, look, look how rich I am. Look how successful I am. We do that with our emotions. We do that with our possessions. We do that with our family. We put on masks to hide the real us. Ananias and Sapphira were doing that. They put on a mask. Notice number two. Greed makes you the most important priority. They worried about themselves, not the needs of others. What do I need in my life? What do I need to be taken care of? You see, greed is always, listen, it's always about you. 
It's never about others. Uh, yesterday, I got a flyer from Sam's uh, Wholesale. And I'm looking through it, and they've got all these Thanksgiving ads going on. And i got to be honest with you, uh, the greed in my heart lit up. Wow! I could have this, and I could have that. And, and, and here was the crazy thing. I had most of the things that they were advertising, but these were bigger, they were better, they were more awesome. And I was, what about me? What about me? Greed always makes you the priority instead of God or others. One of the things in our own home, in fact, I was talking to my son about this, Joshua, yesterday. One of the reasons why we give as a family is to combat greed in our lives. Lord, I want you to be number one. And not myself, not my desires, not what I drive or where I live or the clothes I wear, the TV that I have. It's not about me. I'm not the most important priority. God, you are. Number three, greed causes you to practice deceit. Peter says that Ananias and Sapphira kept back some of the proceeds. That phrase kept back literally is to pilfer or to embezzle. Peter says you stole from God. God gave you something. You said that between you and God, you're going to give this amount, and now you are stealing it back. Brothers and sisters, when we are greedy for ourselves, we don't just pilfer from others who may have needs, we pilfer from God himself. God has given us all kinds of good things, not to just keep them for ourselves, but to be generous with those around us. Notice it does a couple things. It gives the devil an opportunity. Verse 3. Never forget that all forms of greed come from the devil himself. Why? Because the devil was the first greedy individual. The devil, an angel, worshiping God, got greedy for God's glory and says, I want it for myself. And so he went to take it. Greed is always something that begins with the devil. And Peter nails it. He says, how has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Some of us right now, listen, this is very important, are giving the devil an opportunity in our lives because we are just plain greedy. And our family's in disarray. Our kids are in disarray. Our marriages are in disarray. Our checkbooks are in disarray. Because we have not received the blessing of God, but the curses of the devil, because we're buying into his money management instead of God's. We give the devil an opportunity. But notice verse 3 also says we grieve God. He says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Later on in verse 4, he says, You have not lied to men, but to God. Peter's not offended. Peter's like, listen, this issue is between you and the Lord. And you've grieved him. You've upset him. Which means God has a stake in how we give. God has a stake in how we spend our money. God has a stake in how we live our lives, which begs the question, are we glorifying God with what we do, with our money and with our time and our energy, or are we in fact grieving God? One of the two will take place. In chapter 4, we see the glorifying of God. In chapter 5, we see the grieving of God. Well, that leads to some action steps, and I've got to close this out. So what do we do with this? I've got three action steps for those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. And I have one action step for those maybe who have never come to understand or know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Action step number one, and these will not be long, so just write these down and things for you to contemplate. Believer, recognize that God provides you everything. Release some of it. Why are you holding on to God's blessing? 
The faithfulness of God, Lamentation says, is new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. So we receive, we receive, we receive. Christian, how can we be recipients of God's love and mercy and grace and not then in turn share it? Listen, I want you to do an assignment this week. Go to your kitchen sink, grab a sponge, fill it up with all kinds of clean soapy water and put it on the counter and let it sit there. And tell me in a week what that looks like. It's going to be filled with mildew and smells and all of that. What God has made of us is to be sponges that are continually wrung out. And God wants to do that with our finances. God wants to do that with our time. God doesn't want us to fill up on all his blessings and then just leave it for ourselves. God says, wring it out. Use it for something else. God provides you everything. Release some of it. Number two, God isn't playing games with sin, so repent quickly. This should be a passage that calls every one of us to get on our knees and say, God, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Because we recognize that this week, we were like Ananias and Sapphira. That every one of our sins, every one of our wrongful thoughts, every one of our bad decisions had a death penalty to it, but God in his amazing grace and awesome love for us has given us an opportunity to repent. So do it quickly. Do it before it's too late. Number three, giving is an important practice. Resolve to do it. In chapter 4, we see that giving was in many ways the, the steam that caused this this body, this ministry to go. It was the power behind it. And so we need to be a part of that. It encourages others. Giving is contagious. It's an encouragement to others. When we give, we encourage people to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. With the giving, we are able to change lives and change marriages and change families. We're to help people get out of addictions. We're able to show them the love of Christ Giving is an important practice, believer. Resolve to do it. Here's a statistic. I won't give you many, but here's a statistic that I want you to know. Village Bible Church is is maintained by 60% of its regular givers or regular attenders and members. Throughout the year, 40% of those who call Village Bible Church their home have never given a gift to it. And you say, well, that's guilt-tridden. Well, that's fine, okay? Because a Christian is one who is generous. So let's resolve to do it. Let's resolve to be a part of it. And for those who maybe are new to Christianity, maybe new to the church, this is a hard one to swallow, and that is God's punishment is severe. Run to him and find mercy. You see today the judgment of God. It's a dark passage. We've had some really light passages. This is a dark one. And we need to recognize that God's judgment is severe. And maybe you're living in your sin. Maybe you're living in your own rebellion. God is calling you to run to Jesus and find mercy. Find mercy. Find mercy in His Son. Find mercy in the one who covers sin. Find mercy. And maybe you're like, well, I don't know how to find mercy. Then don't leave this place today without knowing who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus has done. Stop by our Welcome Center, grab me, and I'd love to talk with you about it. Find the mercy that God can bring that can save sinners like Ananias and Sapphira from the punishment of God.